welcome to today's episode on the corner of homelessness and trauma and ACEs, where we're really going to explore two questions. How does trauma affect the developing mind of a child? And what are the major factors that make homelessness essentially traumatic? Now, we always like to include our little disclaimer, which is simply this. Homelessness is a complex issue, which we're attempting to dissect and understand through the entirety of this podcast. This is not going to happen in a single episode, but it is important to know that even though we may not completely explore an element of homelessness, it may have a greater impact on the issue as a whole. Our hope is that you keep that curious mindset as you listen and seek to learn just as we are. Another thing to note specifically with regards to the content of this episode, we acknowledge that each of us comes to this podcast with our own unique life experiences. These contribute to the way that we perceive several types of information, and on this episode specifically, we're going to cover a variety of topics, some of which you may find triggering. We will be talking about violence, homelessness, as well as other forms of trauma, and so please make sure that you take care of yourself and listen to what you need. Obviously, we will share to deepen and personalize the experience for learning purposes, but if you feel you need to call or talk with somebody about the experience that you're having, you can always call 211 for mental health services or 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline. As always, I'm your host, Emma Hughes, Outreach and Recruitment Director at Family Promises Spokane. And I'm Joe Ader, the Executive Director of Family Promises Spokane. So excited uh, for this episode to be talking about trauma. Uh, It influences so much of the work that we do and what we see on a daily basis and also how each one of us reacts to the world around us. So uh, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, we are lucky enough to have with us today Sidonia Garner. She is a practicing mental health counselor associate, and she's actually working on her PhD in counseling psychology, where she really dives into research and teaching around various developmental-based projects. She helps people of all ages work through trauma and really move towards a more satisfying life. So Sidonia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I love what you all do, and I'd love to help give any nerdness as much as needed. I love that nerdness. Let's bring on the nerdness and uh, dive into this topic today. So what topic are we talking about? We are talking about trauma and homelessness um, and also ACEs, which is a, a term we'll get into a little bit later. But one of the things that we've learned, Sidonia, over the course of our podcast so far is, and I'm putting you a little bit on the spot, because I want your kind of your first response, your educated response. We've learned that if we don't define the terms that we're using, we often contribute more to the problem. And so before we go too far, what is trauma? Just at its core, what is trauma? Yes, that's a very complicated question. I love that you want the off the cuff answer because there's so many different theories about what it is and approaches to it. The way that I understand trauma is that it is not necessarily a thing that happens or a singular event, but um, it's something that happens that overwhelms our body or our systems' ability to cope and bounce back. 
Um, and it's something that happens over a long amount of time. So it's not so much the thing, it's everything that follows after it. So you're really talking about this idea of trauma is overwhelming somebody's ability to cope, but that how they cope and what resources they have to cope well or poorly really does determine if it's registered long-term as traumatic. Yes. One of the things, Joe, that you often talk about is when we go through really formative experiences as a child, it creates in our minds almost this pattern of viewing the world, of engaging with the world as a safe place or an unsafe place, and then how we need to be as children in order to survive in our environment. Could you talk a little bit about how you've seen that in your own life or in your family's life or or in the lives of our families that we serve at Family Promise? Sure. So at Family Promise in Spokane, we serve families that are experiencing homelessness with minor children. And a lot of these cycles tend to be cyclical. Parents who are experiencing homelessness now experience homelessness and trauma when they were children, and those cycles continue to repeat over time, but it develops certain characteristics. And one of the things that I see often is for children, you can't escape the environment. Wherever the trauma is caused, you you can't escape it. The brain is an amazing thing, but it kind of compartmentalizes that issue. And so what we see often is as people get older, things that they have compartmentalized as children start to come out in adulthood. And often the same defense mechanisms that you developed to survive in childhood are the exact same things that prevent you from thriving in adulthood. Yeah, I could absolutely see that in some of the work that I do, right? Or the themes of how someone interprets information too. So if they're a child and something happens to them and they rightfully so are in a space where they are not able to do anything about it or they're not able to find safety, absolutely reasonable that as an adult, when something overwhelming happens, the similar kind of thought pattern can happen of there's nothing I can do to change this. I can't change anything at all. I'm unsafe. I have no power here. And that can lead to more trauma experiences. So, Sidonia, can you just explain in the brain, what does trauma do? What's happening in the brain? And how can we kind of understand this as just normal people that don't have, you know, advanced degrees in this sort of thing? Yes. So trauma really relates to stress, right? So if you think of PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. So trauma really amps up a body stress response. So the things that our body naturally needs to do to be able to keep us safe, we'll do them all the time. But when there's a traumatic event or a traumatic situation, they get ramped up in a way that does become potentially unhealthy and maladaptive for the individual. The whole kind of stress response is what gets upset when there's trauma. So there's a couple different structures in the brain that are all related to this. One of the first things that we talk about is the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that will assign emotion to certain situations. So if you're standing in line or you're feeling impatient and you're kind of getting irritable with the people in front of you for taking so long, that is your amygdala firing saying, hey, this input that we're getting, we're having this emotional response to it. So oftentimes in trauma, the response is fear. The response is feeling helpless. 
That then moves to another part of the brain, which is the hypothalamus, which that's basically the control room of your brain. And that's what will kick on all of the reactions that everybody has when they're stressed that aren't necessarily controllable. So things like increased heart rate, might sweat a little bit more, you might get shaky, you might not feel hungry anymore. These are all normal responses when someone is stressed. <laughs> and then another area that is important when it comes to trauma is the hippocampus, right? So the memory centers, it's meant to help the brain know, okay, this thing that happens, what is it? How can I be aware of it for the future? How can I remember that this is a dangerous thing or a scary thing or, you know, whatever the amygdala assigns it to be. So that said, the parts of the brain that are affected really are meant to just keep you safe. That's the whole goal of them. I tell my clients all the time, sometimes it's hard to remember, but really our body's just a bunch of little zap zaps and mushy gushies. So your brain is not looking. It's actually getting input from your eyeballs. And really it's an amazingly intricate little section of cells that's trying to come up with an experience and trying to perceive an experience. So when something happens that might be unexpected, something that might mean that danger could happen, you can get hurt, someone that you love can get hurt, the mushy gushies are gonna just want to get all of the right information to the correct part of the brain. So all that to say, major stress response really is your brain saying, hey, we're sensing that something is happening here we might not be safe. We have to do something immediately to prepare to get to safety. Zap zaps and mushy gushies. I, I like that explanation of what's happening in the brain. This is an important this is an important topic because this is how we react to the stressors and the dangers around us. And it's I mean, this is our kind of primal state of we have to be safe. Let's get safe. That's what's driving a lot of these responses. So it's not our you know, logical process. It's that early core run away from danger or fight type of thing or freeze to that stress that that is kicking in. And it kicks in for all of us in different ways throughout our life because of these things. And I think this is really important to to look at as we are talking about homelessness, uh, because homelessness in and of itself is a traumatic event, but it's often preceded by years of traumatic events that then lead to the traumatic event of homelessness, things that we see throughout childhood of the families that we serve. Could you give an example of that, Joe? Because I, I totally agree with you, but I think maybe for our listeners, it's a very like abstract concept. Sure. So this is often the cases where a man or a woman who's an adult now had experienced a traumatic event as a childhood. So one in every three females has experienced some type of physical or sexual abuse by the time they're 18. One in five males have that. That's across the board. That's in all socioeconomic classes. Those rates tend to increase with the number of people that live in the household and the environment that you're in. And so often in poverty households, there's lots of people lots of things going on, lots of opportunities for stress and for traumatic events to occur. And so what happens is for our children that have experienced those type of events, uh, when they grow up to be adults, they see the world differently. 
and I'm included in this group. The way I read a room is different. The way I sit down in a chair at a table so that my back is not to a door is a result of the way that, you know, childhood trauma that I had. So I have to be in a spot where I'm vigilant of what's going on around me. And I can't just be always calm in those situations. And that's a very small example of this, but it plays out in many different ways for our families and for our children. The way that somebody says something to us, triggers something in a person's mind that brings back a childhood memory that that causes them fear and anxiety, Uh, whether it was meant to to do that or not, it's these, your brain kind of connecting the dots with something that came even years before. Yeah, your mushy gushies and your zap zaps connected something that you maybe consciously did not, but you're seeing it play out in real time, often as an adult and often like unaware of like, why am I so terrified right now? Like why, what is happening? You might not always know, uh, but it's still there, right? Because it's held often in your body and in the part of you that maybe exists without words. Sidonia, anything to add onto this kind of topic of conversation? I love this because I think, again, this is stuff that we see all the time. And one of the really cool things about the body and the brain is your brain is designed not to make it conscious. So when Joe is talking about how sometimes there might be a trigger or there might be something that you connect and you kind of think, oh, okay, I want to sit down in this room, but I do not want my back to be to the door. Or I need to be able to sit in a way that I see everybody. That might not be conscious at first, because if you think about it, if the brain's whole goal is to keep someone physically safe, being consciously aware of what's going on is incredibly dangerous when it comes to a lot of things. So one of the examples that I give all the time is at the very beginning of the hike, no big deal, but maybe at the end of the parking lot, you see a tiny little snake warming up in the sun. Creepy, kind of like, okay, like I'm nervous about that snake. And then as you're on a hike, sometimes every stick or weird rock, you have a bit of a like, oh, what is that? Which if you think about the logic of looking at every stick and saying, oh, what is that? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That's going to look kind of weird if everyone's constantly walking around going, oh, what is that? Oh, what is that? Because there's sticks everywhere. But the point of the brain to be able to do that before you can consciously think through is because if you think about it, if I see a snake that I'm walking next to, if I think, oh, wow, there's a snake right there. I'm a human. Snakes have venom. Human bodies don't like venom. I should probably step aside. Too late. I'm going to get bit by the snake or I'm going to step on the snake or whatever. Your body needs to be able to have these reactions to be able to keep it safe. The hard thing is when you're in an environment that you're not unsafe is then your brain will start to make these connections that might not on the surface appear logical or they might be confusing or frustrating or they don't seem to be helping you towards your goal. But in reality, your brain is like, no, we're going to make it seem like, no, you have to sit where you can see the door. (sighs) No other question. And so a lot of my work as a therapist is to really figure out, okay, where are those kind of natural trigger points and how do we consciously address them and consciously work through them. Um, And I imagine with homelessness too, a big piece of it is how can we consciously (laughs) address some of these natural responses that the body's having? Yeah, no, that's great. One of the things that I, I'm switching topics a little bit, but 
One of the things that I've heard and have seen and used as well when I'm explaining trauma is this idea of the hand model, or you, you can kind of hear it phrased like, oh, you know, she just flipped her lid. What is that? So uh, there is a there is a model for this. It's it it starts with like a, a closed fist around your thumb, and then as agitation starts, this is supposed to symbolize your brain, and it kind of looks like a brain when you when you make that that hand motion, uh, where you're holding onto your thumb, and then as you get agitated, the brain kind of opens up, and it looks like a can opening. Um, so flipping your lid. Uh, is is what's often said. And so as you are dealing with situations and the stress increases, that opens up that that lid, which means that you are not able to use your whole brain. You are using the part of your brain that, that is reacting to the circumstance, but not the one that's, that's completely logically thinking through these situations. And so uh, there's this idea, and I've actually heard a teacher explain this uh, to her students, and she would say, okay, your lid might be flipped right now, so let's wait till your lid is closed, and then let's talk about what happened. So she was trying to use that to like explain to little children what is going on in their mind so that they could calm down enough to then think through that. I've heard a police officer say this before, that I'm trying to think for that person the way that they would want to think for themselves in better circumstances because they their lid is flipped and they're not processing in a calm, coherent way. They're processing in a reactive way uh, in more of a survival mechanism in that moment. Yeah, that's a great analogy, right? Because those structures that I talked about before, those are very close to the brain stem, which by and large, we consider the structures that are close to the brain stem. Those are kind of more of the animalistic parts that we have, a lot more of the reactionary parts versus the frontal cortex. That is something that's pretty unique, again, by and large to humans. So when your lid is flipped, what I'm thinking of as you say that, Joe, is yeah, frontal cortex, where you make your decisions, where you're able to assess things, where you're able to employ values like patience or communication, that goes offline, which again, makes sense. If you're thinking of a major danger, like a bear or a snake or something, not a helpful tool to be able to say, huh, let's weigh the pros and cons of what's happening right now as I'm about to step on a snake, right? And so... I love that concept with the flipped lid. And I think the other thing too that I want to add to that is, especially with children, there's a lot of structures in the brain that we have observed to turn off when someone's having a trauma response. So things like the language centers of the brain tend to have a lot less activity. So I don't know if you've ever experienced someone right after something happens, maybe like a a car accident or something where they're kind of not able to piece together what happened and what they're saying. And it's not because they weren't paying attention or they weren't there. It's their brain shut down the, what are the words I need to use? What's the order I need to use them in? And with children, when that happens, that can be incredibly frustrating and that can make it even harder to regulate. If you can't communicate what's going on with the person who's supposed to help you, that's extra scary. I'm going to have a hard time calming down, not kicking, not crying, not running away, things like that. It's a good reminder, too, because, I mean, we talk so often about we need other humans 
Um, And in the case of trauma, humans become to one another often the source of trauma as well as the way to get out of a traumatic experience. Because when you are triggered, when you have a flipped lid, when your prefrontal cortex is not online, as you were saying, Sidonia, it's really difficult to come, you know, back down and to be calm. It's not like a decision that you can make. It often is kind of something that you you pursue in relationship with other people. How do we re-regulate? Let's say we have a flipped lid. How do we calm ourselves and our bodies down? And what can people do to help one another in a position like that? I think that's a very interesting piece of what I do as a therapist, right? Is learning, okay, how do we, one, recognize that a lid is flipped? Because sometimes it can be really hard to see, Um, especially if there's someone around you that maybe it be a stranger or if there's a situation that you're also stressed too, it could feel almost personal, (laughs) Why, like, why are you yelling at me? I also was rear-ended. Or why are you so upset right now? This is not a big deal to me, and I don't understand how it could be a big deal to you, right? So the first piece is learning of how to recognize if you are someone with a flipped lid. And then the next piece is being able to find ways to calm down the nervous system. And so a lot of times that can be the very grounding type of techniques that get talked about a lot. So, you know, calm breathing and taking a deep breath. A lot of times there can be just mirroring with other people. So having another person there that feels safe, your body will pick up on their rhythms and how the energy that they're giving off. And so it can be really calming when you're with someone who you trust and who you know is going to help you. Unfortunately, for populations like people experiencing homelessness, that's not easy to access all the time. And because of stigma and the way that people might approach them, you know, I am someone who I have a lot of privilege when it comes to my SES and my location and things like that. If I walk into a hospital, by and large, I do feel like I would be approached with, okay, what's going on? We're going to take your word for it. And we're going to say, man, I'm so sorry. We'll get you some help right away. If you are someone who has social identity that is not as, or maybe that is more marginalized, such as someone experiencing homelessness, They might not get some of the warm experience from other people that can help them regulate. They might get a bit more of a, okay, we'll sit down and we'll get to you, you know, kind of thing, which can also be ultimately adding more stress. We say it often that homelessness is not just a lack of housing, but it's a lack of community. It's a lack of relationships that you can lean on that are supportive for you, whether that's because of things that you've done things that have been done to you or just general circumstance, you just don't have those close connections that will support you long-term. And so you end up on the streets, you end up in need of resources. And we see that happen often. Because of that, you don't have those close relationships that you can lean on. And or you had relationship after relationship after relationship that was just broken trust, broken trust, broken trust. So your defense mechanisms are up to the point where, okay, I'm just going to build a wall and I'm not letting anybody in. And so there's not a way to calm that reaction that we see a lot with the uh, families that we serve. We've kind of talked a little bit about this, but I want to kind of transition a bit and talk about 
this really revolutionary study that came out years ago called the ACEs study. ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this concept, kind of the history of that study and what it has meant for trauma, for research, for just education in general, has been incredibly formative. Joe, could you just give us a little bit of the history of the ACEs study? And then, Sidonia, I want to hear from you a little bit more about what what is that played out in kind of the modern side of the conversation? All right. This is actually a very interesting aspect of trauma in childhood trauma. What that study was actually studying was kind of unique. Um, and if anybody knows it, I want you to be thinking of it right now. Take your guess of what they were trying to study when they developed this theory of ACEs. So Emma, do you know what they were studying? I only know it because you and I have talked about it before. So it's a little bit of a cheater, but I would not have guessed. Yeah. So actually the study was uh, done by Kaiser Permanente in California and they were studying obesity, but they were taking an assessment of all of these different obese patients of their whole lives, talking about food and calorie intake and exercise, those things that we normally think of obesity. But that conversation continued on to other aspects, including sex. And one of the questions that they asked was, how old were you when you had your first sexual experience? And one of the patients said five. And this was a patient that had been sexually abused. And that triggered in the researcher to ask more questions about childhood in childhood experience and trauma. And what they found is in a, in a majority of folks that were experiencing obesity as adults had these childhood traumatic experiences. And so they started uh, listing out and they came up with 10 of them on this ACEs study that show these are traumatic events in childhood that impact future life and even your physical body in the way it develops in your future life. And so that's where that study came from, but it does have a big impact on what we see today. So Donia, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the cool things that I love about research in general and that I get really excited about and nerdy about is the numbers don't lie, right? So at the end of the day, One of the amazing things that this study provided for us was clear cut numbers of, oh, we're seeing this percentage of people having this number of ACEs, having these diagnoses, we're able to quantify it very differently. And so I do know that the study ultimately came up with what I kind of clinically pay attention to is that the more ACEs someone has, the more likely they are to experience certain health risks and mental health risks. So that could be things like you know obesity, heart disease, heart attack, death by suicide, things like that, way more likely the more you have. And I do think that one of the very interesting pieces to this is again, it was created by an insurance company that was interested in, okay, what are some of the things that we can do here to try to understand why is this happening and how can we prevent it? And I saw that over the estimated cost of ACEs related injury in the US, Canada, and one more kind of entity, the annual cost of those is over 700 billion. 
So the toll that it's taking on our medical systems, the toll that it's taking in our communities, and then the toll that's taking within these individuals is very high. <laughs> and we can see that and we can begin to address that. Wow, that's staggering. I know some of the ACEs include things like growing up in a house with a parent that has mental health issues or substance use issues, divorce. Maybe there is a parent that is in jail or a family member that is in jail. And then homelessness actually is listed as one of the adverse childhood experiences as well, which is where it intersects with our kind of heart for this podcast is, yeah, how do these things that we experience in childhood, these adverse childhood experiences, knowing that the more of them that we experience, the more compounded our challenges often can become, you know, it's not guaranteed, but it is, you know, correlated, if you will. That makes a huge difference in the communities that we have today, knowing that people are walking around with these things in their backgrounds that are challenging and are traumatic. I don't know. It just, it grows an, a sense of empathy, I think, as we all engage with one another. At least that's the hope, is that we're realizing, wow, people have been through some really hard stuff. And I don't know what all that stuff is, but statistically, most of us have been through at least one of these challenging things. So maybe we should extend grace, you know, a little bit more to one another. And if I can add to one of the things that I have seen come up whenever I speak with people about ACEs, there are some things that certain populations might have either are likely to have these things. So it's almost like a common thing. So people tend not to think of it as an adverse childhood experience. They just think, oh, that's just something that happens. Or if you think about mental health and kind of historically speaking, how the field has been, a lot of times the things that are on these lists are not, maybe let me use a specific example. So things like parental divorce is considered an adverse childhood experience. Prior to the study, mental health-wise, there wasn't really a consideration for that as far as treatment-wise goes. It was one of those things where maybe it would be, okay, well, that was a problem with the parents, so we're going to address that with the parents. But prior to the study, there wasn't much consideration for, oh, that also was an adverse experience for the children in the home, right? And so it creates the space to be able to have conversations of there are things that, again, maybe certain populations or communities might just be part of the norm. So things like divorce or substance use, mental illness, incarceration of a caregiver, those are things that might just feel like a norm. And as a society, we might forget, no, actually, this is very distressing for a kiddo. One of the things that that I've actually struggled with within the ACEs is is when my, my wife and I, when we first found out about ACEs and I came home and was like, there's this thing called ACEs. I had heard about it at a conference. And we sat down and we, we looked it up and, you know, there's 10 things on there and we were talking about it. And, you know, I scored about half. My wife actually scored almost all of them. Uh, I think maybe even all 10. And the thing that came out of it was then we said we saw all the health outcomes, right? That, and, and it was really depressing, for her in particular, where it was like, oh, I'm going to live 10 years less. I'm probably going to die of cancer. I'm, And so it was really depressing in that sense. 
So one of my questions for you is when there are these types of studies or there are these types of tools, what is the best way to step in and say these things exist, but here's where you go from here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think remembering that these statistics oftentimes come from when there is no intervention, right? So it's not necessarily saying that anyone who has four or five ACEs are always so likely to die by suicide or experience this level of mental illness. What it is saying that so like in the past so far, people who have not received intervention or do not have a supportive community tend to have this outcome. If I were pose that question in therapy of someone being like, well, oh no, I'm going to have a heart attack now. I would say, I don't know the answer to that. I don't have a glass ball, but you are here now. And now we're able to talk about them and we're able to start to build a community for you in a way that maybe you didn't have. Maybe we're able to facilitate some healing for you in a way that you didn't have. And that can be so, so powerful. So yes, it can absolutely be scary. I do get a little wary. There are some like online take this quiz thing. And what ACEs are you getting? Or have you gotten when you were a kid? I do get a little wary because yeah, it can be really bum you out to think, oh my gosh. Or also sometimes the wait, other people didn't experience this. That can also be something that can be kind of jarring. And again, that's where I think, no, this is the amazing part of being able to have this information is now moving forward. Okay. Maybe you are more likely to experience some severe mental illness, which means when you start to get those thoughts that are maybe a little scary, maybe you're just someone who should really not keep them to themselves. I would argue most people should not, but okay, you're just someone who let's get you into therapy before it feels dire. Or okay, you're likely to have heart disease. Great, let's find some really fun hikes for you to go on to get the heart pumping and change things. On that same note, uh, I had somebody, a pastor actually. Uh, so for those of you that don't know, I come from a faith-based background and, and faith is really important to me. But historically in the church, uh, counseling has been looked down upon and, and talked poorly about, but I actually had a pastor once that said, counseling is preemptive. You should be doing it always anyway, because we are all going through life in a broken world. And so you should be addressing these issues all the time, talking about them, not when there is a crisis, but before there is a crisis, so that you can handle that crisis when it comes. I think that was really powerful for me, because when I first, you know, was talking about counseling, I was like, man, you know, do we really have that big of an issue? And that really helped me to be like, no, no, it's okay. And then what I've realized through even doing, you know, my own work is, man, there's so many layers that you don't even know that like, that onion goes deep and there's a lot of different layers of that onion. And really the thing that is driving you more than you realize is something that's three or four levels deep that, wow, when you really get there, it makes a lot of difference so that you can navigate the world in a new way or a different way. So I just want to encourage that for those that are listening to this is one thing that you can do is seek uh, counseling, is seek, seek people to talk to about if you have experienced these childhood uh, traumas. I think you bring up a really good point is 
we talk and have been talking a lot about trauma. What is it? What are the negative impacts of it? But the other thing that at least I've experienced in Sidonia, you know, I'm putting you on the spot here, but speak a little bit to this if you can, is as you go through trauma, it almost opens up this deeper well of human experience, which then as you choose to pursue health and as you choose to engage with your friends and your family and your therapist and maybe your faith, as you choose to do those deep breathing you know, exercises and all of that stuff, that does compound and it makes a huge difference in learning to cope with and grow even beyond where you could have been before. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, that kind of resilience in a post, you know, after trauma? Talk a little bit about that, Sidonia. I think part of the piece is something that Joe had mentioned with what that pastor was speaking about of how therapy can be used as kind of a preventative way to mine through and uh, like build those skills and also kind of prepare for if things happen because we are in a world that is very scary and hard things happen. I think one of the really cool things is ultimately when you think about trauma, this is a massively (laughs) whittled down way to think about it, but ultimately when something bad happens and your body gives a trauma response, what's happening is you're checking out of the present moment ultimately. And you're checking out of your humanity, right? So with the flipped lid piece, I mentioned one of the things that make humans unique is our amazing, you know, frontal cortex, our ability to speak, our ability to connect. That piece of our humanity goes away when you're deep in the throes of a trauma response. And so when you start to heal from trauma, you are presented with a way of examining how am I showing up as a human? What are the things that make this life as a human enriching? And how can I acknowledge when that's not happening in the way that I want it to be happening and change the course? Which, because our bodies, again, are kind of designed to be able to, when things are stressed, tune out and turn off some of those things that make the human experience so rich and exciting. I I would love to know what you guys think, but someone who hasn't had trauma processing might be able to naturally cope with some things, but they might not naturally get an opportunity to confront what does it mean to be in a human relationship, right? Like, what does it mean to be thinking about, okay, someday I will die. How am I going to live before that happens? And as scary and awful and as terrible as traumatic events can be and as hard and gut-wrenching as trauma work can be, Ultimately, it gives you a chance to consent and fully buy into uh, when I'm online, I want to be online. (laughs) When I am present, when my lid is not flipped, I want to be able to know how enriching my relationships can be or how vast the human experience can be. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I love it, too, because I think you're getting at exactly that is if you've been through trauma you can heal from trauma. Trauma doesn't have to have the last word in your story. And what you were talking about there, Sidonia, of like, you can live your life after going through trauma. You can do that work. You can engage in that stuff and see it be more beautiful on the other side. Like it's not just a death sentence or, or something that you have to go you know, through. Like there is goodness possible. Coming back to homelessness and trauma, we often have this language that we use 
in this homeless realm where we talk about either homeless people or people experiencing homelessness and trauma is that same way. There's either traumatized people or people that have experienced trauma. And the second, even though it's more words and it's more complex to say, is really talking about this is a state of being and it's temporary. It's not the definition of you. It's not the adjective that describes you. It is a state of being that is current or present or that happened, but it's not what has to determine your future. And I think that's a big thing, particularly for our families who have experienced both trauma and are experiencing homelessness, that there is hope. The future is not determined already by what you have gone through, but is determined by where you go from here and what that looks like. And so I think this is a big concept. A lot of the work that we have to do and a lot of what you see in homelessness is hopelessness rather than a hopeful outlook on what the future will hold. And a lot of that is developed over time. It's developed through childhood. It's developed through broken relationships. So we have to rebuild the way that we view the world and view what is possible as we move forward in life. And I think that's uh, a super important concept as you are addressing these circumstances that have influenced you, they do not have to define you long term. I absolutely would agree with that. I also would go as far to say that it's not just that it doesn't have to define you, but it can define you in whatever way you choose. And sometimes that can be an amazing, again, empowering tool, right? So just kind of an example that I have told people before, um, I also have some experiences with trauma. And when I first started to be a therapist, I was very intent on, I do not ever want this to show through in my work. I viewed it as something that would cloud my judgment. And over time with my amazing therapist that I've worked with and also this amazing supervisor I had, somehow they changed the mindset and now I fully embody the idea that it's not just that the parts of my past that are, you know, have a lot of trauma. It's not just that I need to keep that in check and learn how to, you know, keep it in line as my therapist self and working with clients. And in reality, it almost is a superpower because now that I've learned to be able to embody some of those things about my story and my past, I am able to pick up on some things that maybe a therapist who hasn't experienced those things might not. And there's ways that I can relate and I can understand And there's metaphors that I use that I probably would never have thought of if I didn't have those experiences or if I didn't hear those metaphors from, you know, mentors. So at some point, I do also encourage people to just explore the thought of, yes, your trauma does not have to define you. And also, what if it does become something that becomes a superpower to be able to be fully embodied in it? no longer have it be something that needs to be guarded or hidden um, and something that can just enhance your experience either with other people in the world, society, what have you. So that's another thing that I would love to add on that. That's a, that's a fantastic topic, a fantastic idea. And, and we see that even in our own work that we do here with working with families that have experienced homelessness and trauma, 
uh, I know that I was reluctant to share that part about my past. And then when I did start sharing about abuse as child as a child openly with our guests at the shelter, I'll, I'll never forget there was this this man that was just big and gruff and you know, big beard, construction worker, tough guy, one of these tough guys. And maybe maybe a couple months later, we're putting lights up. It was right before Christmas. We're putting lights up, and, it, and it's him and I, and we're, we're working on putting these lights up. And then he just, on the roof, says, how did you talk about that? Because I can't talk about that, and there's no way I could forgive the person that did that to me. And so here's this big, gruff, you know, tough guy who starts crying on a roof while we're putting up Christmas lights. And now we're having this really unique, unusual moment, but it's because it started with being open about my own experience. And then that led to this deeper conversation, this deeper connection. I think that's something that we take for granted and also are almost embarrassed about these things that we've experienced in our past. But there's that that quote, and I've seen the meme floating around where it's like, your story, sharing your story could be part of somebody's, oh gosh, what? how does it go? Somebody's victory map or something like that. Basically, somebody's road map uh, out of the situation that they're in. I wish I had the quote. We're going to stick it into this podcast at some point. But that's something that I think is is really important. And I'm so glad that you brought that up, Sidonia. Kind of the the thing as we wrap up here that I want to talk about is what do we do? So we've talked a ton about the importance of therapy. I'm an average person listening. I don't have a degree. You know, I love therapy, but I'm not a therapist. How can I help both you know, the people in my life that are experiencing or have experienced trauma, what do I do to really help mitigate the effects of trauma in my community? We sometimes get really focused on the individual piece of trauma, which is super important, right? Like as a therapist, that's where a lot of the work that I do with somebody is, is in the individual. But in reality, an individual is nested within so many different systems. And so The reason why I'm talking about this in response to your question, Emma, is when you say, you know, as an average person, what can I do? We don't necessarily need a person to go and speak directly with somebody. If there's a stranger or a friend, you know, if they don't have the skill set, if it's not safe for them to know. But in reality is you are acting in their community. (laughs) Like you are doing the things that are in those outer circles and you're part of those outer circles. So When it comes to trauma and community trauma and specifically trauma with people who are experiencing homelessness, sometimes things even just as little as looking someone in the eye, that will change how they experience their community or what's called their mezzo community, right? Um, Or their mezzo system. If someone wants to volunteer, as kind of cheesy as it sounds, if you are maybe handing out, you know, food at a food bank, really what you're doing is you're altering their system, their kind of mental system, you're rebalancing the amount of people that care, that show warmth towards them, that show connection opportunities. That can really change 
trauma experiences and experiences of people who are experiencing homelessness. And so there also is this piece of when you work with bigger communities or bigger organizations like Family Promise, being aware of the fact of how you conduct yourself in those communities actually really, really does make a difference, right? So even if you are not someone who maybe carries cash on them and you're not able to give somebody a cash or something safely, you know, smile at them, you know, that actually does make a big community difference. Paying attention as much as possible, as much healthy for you to social and like community policies, right? So being aware as much as you can, as much as you're able of, okay, what are the policies in place and are these actually helping the community or is this further stigmatizing? Is this further discouraging homelessness, things like that in a way that is contributing to the trauma. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. It's, well, and that's what I love is, well, I don't love this, but trauma does happen at that individual level. It also can happen on a community level. It also can happen on a cultural level. We can see it between generations. It exists kind of as a a fabric beneath and through so many things. And so then what you're saying, Sidonia, is that the healing and the compassion and the intentional choice to be anti-traumatic is making a difference on whatever system or whatever groupings of people or whatnot you can be a part of. And so, yeah, like you said, making eye contact with that person that you're driving down the street and seeing with the sign. Just eye contact validates that they are a human, that they deserve warmth and compassion, even if you give them nothing. Maybe you are more prone towards policy or for, you know, advocacy in that way. Exactly like what Sidoni said, paying attention to what policies and what are the impact of those policies on people at that individual level and using your voice to be more trauma-informed in that way. There's everything, every system, every relationship has an opportunity for you to express compassion and warmth, curiosity and intentionality. And I think wherever you feel called, that's where you are invited to go. Whatever really makes you curious or what makes you excited, be compassionate in those areas, in those relationships. And that is the work of undoing trauma. And that's what all of us can do. We can all be a part of that. The one part that I will add to that is this idea of you can speak things into existence. And we talk about this in our staff often. You speak things into existence. The words that we use are powerful and important. And the way that we talk about issues, the way that we talk about other people is important. And so I'm just reminded of a breakfast that I was at probably two months ago. And it was a group of men uh, having a breakfast together. And there was one man there that was talking about homelessness. And he was talking about homeless people and how they are all drug addicts and really derogatory comments. He had no idea he was sitting across from four people who have experienced homelessness. So his awareness of his environment and the way that he communicated really set the tone for adversity in a difficult uh, relationship to follow rather than having a conversation with an attempt to understand and communicating, understanding, talking to people, uh, really making people human 
which they are, and communicating in that way. I think it's super important, the words that we use and how we talk about others. Not that we are to police other people's language in any way, but our own way that we verbalize the thoughts that are coming through our heads and really fleshing those out rather than just making an assumption that everything is always or never this, that's almost always never true. Uh, If you ever use those words, always or never, it's almost always never true. So it's really important the way that we communicate and, and adding the ability to have diversity of thought and understanding to gain more understanding on these topics. That idea of, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts, right? So the way that you speak does make a bit of an impact. Ultimately, it does because you are a part of someone's system. Just because the fact that you're living in a city that also has some people who are experiencing homelessness, it it doesn't matter. You are a part of their system. And like I said before, again, the trauma is not so much the thing that happened, but all of the things that follow after. So know, too, that when someone experiences something that's stressful or potentially traumatic, having those experiences of someone to be able to come back to. So when someone, you know, is able to come back to a homeless shelter, maybe, and have a bit of a community with people there that they see, or if they do have someone who maybe gives them a smile or at least looks them in the eye like they're human, those kind of things can add up in a positive way and can be helpful protective factors to keep things from developing further into, you know, a lot more harm, a lot more of an intense struggle. Any final thoughts? I know we kind of bounced around on our questions, but what anything that you really feel like you weren't able to communicate or we didn't ask about that you think is really important to this conversation? One thing that I would like to say is how having the ACEs how that can lead into struggles and things like having, you know, those experiences with homelessness, how that does end up becoming more unhealthy issues and more dangerous systems. And I do think that one thing that sometimes can happen when you're hearing about these ideas, there's not a face to it, you know, if it's, you know, if we just say, hey, ACEs lead to these things, it can be hard to see the progression and how slow and kind of intentional the process actually can be. So I think just kind of wanting to restate, you know, if there's children who are experiencing ACEs, if they're powerless to be able to get out of them, that can lead to things that will become way harder for them to be able to address when they're an adult. And a lot of times when they come across my couch, right? Um, So if someone has a traumatic experience or potentially traumatic experience as a child, that could lead to Maybe they might start becoming quieter when their natural personality is not to be quiet. And then maybe they'll start to lose friends or maybe they show up to class and they're hungry. Maybe they might start not doing very well on grades and then they start to get the reputation as, oh, this is a kid that doesn't pay attention in class. And then, you know, third grade teacher goes to the fourth grade teacher and says, oh, hey, you got so-and-so. Watch out for them. They don't pay attention at all. Um, And those kind of things can follow and develop into kind of more intense experiences for the kiddo where, okay, yeah, like they might start having a hard time making friends. They might have a hard time understanding class material. And if they don't understand class material, they might not be able to develop a passion to drive a career in the future. So, and if they don't have a support system and friends and any kind of 
you know, clear cut, oh, I really enjoy learning about this thing. I want to try to apply this, you know, down the road as an adult, that can get pretty tricky pretty fast. And that can make it extremely hard for someone to get out of that system and that cycle. Again, it can be really easy to see statistics of, oh, hey, ACEs lead to this. And it can be easy to be like, oh, that's a bummer. But in reality, there is a lot of stuff that happens after an ACE happens that can make it really hard for kiddos and for especially for kiddos who are experiencing homelessness. That's a really good point. And what I love about really slowing it down is realizing that at any point, there also can be that intervention. If somebody had noticed, hey, that kiddo is not talking the same way they used to. Hey, I'm noticing that, you know, that child has worn the same thing to school three or four days in a row. Instead of letting that just go unaddressed, you actually choose to step in and say, hey, tell me what's going on. You seem a little off. You seem a little different. And maybe they won't answer, and that's fine. But just that intention of showing that you care. Somebody cares. Somebody saw them, and somebody said something. That can make all the difference, especially early on as these things are happening. Because trauma tells you that you're alone, which is why when community comes around and supports and says you're not alone, that makes all the difference in the world. Um, and so paying attention, that's huge. One of my favorite quotes is by Mary Oliver, and she says, paying attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And that comes to me often when I think of being faced with somebody, you know, that is in a challenging position. And I just think to myself, paying attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. We don't know what that person needs necessarily, but we can be here with someone through it. And that changes things. Well, Sedonia, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. It's been awesome having you, awesome learning from you and with you. Um, and this conversation, I think, will contribute to just a lot more for our community. I'm really excited about it. So thank you for being a part. Our hope is that you tune in next time for our episode. This next episode, we're actually going to be focusing on something really interesting, and that is the data and trends of homelessness. Why does correct data matter? And what does that tell us about the state of homelessness in our community and in many communities? So to wrap up, Joe found the quote that he was trying to quote earlier, um, and he's going to share it with us as kind of the last food for thought. The quote is actually by Brene Brown, and it says, One day you will tell your story of how you overcame what you went through, and it will become someone else's survival guide. Think about that as we leave this episode and we move on to better, brighter, more hopeful future. Thank you so much for joining us.